Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. Well, O'Toole, 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 it's Jackie Day. Happy New Year, Hollister. Happy 2017. Happy New Year to you too. Yeah. And to everyone out there too. And before we get going on all that we have to talk about today, which is a lot, I just wanted to do a quick follow-up to the Carrie Fisher shocker. And then, of course, Debbie Reynolds passing away the next day. The HBO documentary that was to air in the spring has now been moved up to this Saturday night on HBO. It premiered in Cannes and was well-received there. So if you're looking for some kind of closure, you might want to tune in this Saturday night. And you know who produced that documentary? Like countless others, Sheila Nevins. She produces so many documentaries every year. She's the one who convinced Rory Kennedy to make the documentary about her mother, Ethel. Oh, okay then. Just to weave it into our Kennedy week. Right. But I think, you know, it's certainly well worth a watch if you have HBO and if you're still mourning, uh, you know, the passing, the shocking passing of of Carrie and her mom. So, Well, Hollister, to follow up on last week as well, after our discussion of La La Land... (laughs) I went back and watched Roberta. It was the third movie Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers did together. This was the film that gave us the song, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. And I can confirm that no one is like Fred and Ginger. They really did move on air. Well, you know, I I hope you're now justifying my point of view and we can leave this all behind. Fred Astaire actually played the piano. Did I ever tell you I once saw Ginger Rogers? No, you didn't. Especially when you do the continental. It was so sad. I saw her at a bookstore. She came for a signing of her autobiography, and she was in a wheelchair. And it's just not the way I expected to see Ginger Rogers. But at least I got to see her, so that was a treat. Well, there you go. Okay, so moving along. Well, goodbye. Goodbye. To our list of six this week. And again, thanks to Melissa Cohn, uh, mortgage broker extraordinaire, for sponsoring this for us. We decided to do strong female characters in TV series since 2000. So do you want to kick us off? I'm so excited about this list of six. I can't even tell you. Okay. All right. Well, the first one on my list would be Kalinda from The Good Wife. Oh, God, you know, it's funny. I thought about what you were going to do, and I don't know why I'm surprised, but that's a great pick. Well, okay. to go back to Ginger Rogers, you know how, was it Ann Richards who said that Ginger Rogers had to do everything Fred Astaire did, but she had to do it backwards and in high heels? <laughs> Kalinda did so much that was so impressive. She didn't crumple under cross-examination when put on the witness stand. She, however, did everything from swinging a baseball bat while looking good in leather. Okay. I actually like that choice for you. Yeah, good one. One little quirk. I went to an interview once of Robert and Michelle King, the the creators of The Good Wife, and they said that in the very first season, which I might have to go back and and rewatch, the quirk that Archie Punjabi decided to give her character was she was always drinking strawberry milk. And so many viewers wrote in, they were so worried that Kalinda was ill. And it was really medicine that she had to drop her quirky little drink. Well, that's an interesting choice, and I think it's a good choice for you. And I'm going to, of course, go right. I mean, no one's going to be surprised by some of my choices, but I have to start with C.J. Craig from The West Wing. A fine choice. It is. And you know what is so wonderful about C.J. Craig is she had a heart. She was a romantic. And at the same time, she was driven for her own uh, sense of self and accomplishment and personal accomplishment. She never once lost her moral fiber through the entire seasons that she was in. And her character grew bigger, bigger, bigger. 
uh, when some of the other characters became a bit diminished. (laughs) She was tall to begin with. (laughs) She's tall, that's true. But, you know, right down to her, the jackal. Hard, living fast, living large, six foot four, and not an ounce of fat. They called him the jackal. By the way, she did that in her in her dressing room for a bunch of friends, and then Sorkin wrote it into the script because he thought she was so great. So I, I picked C.J. Craig. You know, if we could vote for press secretary, I, I would write her in. I would. There I, you go. I wish she were our exactly. real press secretary. I know. Well, uh, if wishes were horses, lots of things might change. But at any rate, <laughs> who's your second one? Okay, I had to put Maggie Smith on Downton Abbey, oh. playing the Dowager oh God, Countess of, of that. Grantham. Yep. And when you yep. said, okay, six strong female characters, I thought she was amazing that she could bring people to their knees from a seated position. Because she was so often seated in the show, but just with a good bon mot or a withering look, she reigned. I'm so looking forward to seeing your mother again. When I'm with her, I'm reminded of the virtues of the English. But isn't she American? Exactly. Mag- Maggie was always Maggie in that show, mm-hmm. always. You knew she yeah, was going to survive choice. the war. Exactly. My second choice is Carrie Russell in The American. Nice choice there, Hollister. Thanks. Yes. Yeah, a little surprise for you there. Um, now, why do I like her? I love her mothering. I love her commitment to country, which share, you know, which I share with her. Which country? Her birth country or her country where she was living? Well, she was never committed to America that I've seen. Oh, I see. So her you, commi- you love her. Yeah, her okay. commitment is to Russia. Yeah, she's not committed to America. Okay, interesting, Hollister. Yeah, he he, you know, he started to go over to the other side. I love the way she loves him as well, and I love the way she's no nonsense and gets on with it and still looks really good. So Carrie Russell's my second choice. All right, and for my last one, I chose Claire on McLeod's Daughters. Oh. You know, she knew how to run a ranch in the Australian outback. Really need I say more. She opts to plunge headfirst off a cliff in a jeep to save her own baby. I, I don't think anyone's ever been stronger than Claire on McLeod's Daughters. Okay, you know what? It's so funny. I should have figured that one out, and I didn't. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I sh- that one I should have known, because my last one, you of course know. Would you like to tell everybody who you're confident <laughs> will be my last choice? I'm going to go with Sandra O oh from Grey's Anatomy. You are right. safe. Thank you. You know me so well. Thank Christina you. Yang, the great, fabulous, who, by the way, everybody thinks is the mean girl, but the truth is she's honest when everybody else is not. She's loyal when everybody else, you know, wavers in that area as well. And she taught me so much about being my true self. And I thank Shonda Rhimes for her every single day. I really do. So Christine Yang, I, I end up with, with her as my last and, and biggest choice. So we'd love to hear who your uh, choices are for the strongest female character in, seri- in, the, in a series since 2000. What, I mean, it's just so fun to think about it, how these women have affected us uh, from series you know, that have taken place, and how you really can learn from people on television and then justify out the in- huge number of hours that you spend watching <laughs> it. So, so there you go. Also... On the recommendation of one of our listeners, I watched the first, you know, the five-part series on HBO called The Jinx. And what did you think? Okay. 
Sometimes when doing a documentary, the filmmaker gets lucky, and this is one of those times. What was the documentary about that woman? They called her like the Queen of of Versailles, Versailles, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that documentarian got lucky also in that as the documentary was being filmed, the entire, you know, house of cards they were living in fell apart, and it made the documentary great. Well, this is one of those similar type things where... Um, the last five minutes of the documentary, which I won't ruin for you because it, but you couldn't have scripted it better. She talked on the telephone with her husband, then she vanished, and no one has seen Kathleen Durst since. Durst was wanted for murder in Texas. He's a suspect for murders in Los Angeles, and Westchester County, New York. Is he crazy enough to participate? Hi, Mr. Durst. It's the story of Durst, who's a, a very big family in uh, New York City real estate. In fact, they actually are the management company for the new World Trade Center. Oh. So, yeah, I mean, huge, huge, huge real estate family in New York. And he's, of course, been this huge embarrassment to the family. He was accused, or not in court, but accused of his first wife's disappearance that he killed her. And then he was actually tried in Texas for cutting up a man, which he actually admitted to cutting up this body. The documentarian keeps the pace for five straight hours. And the filmmaker is Andrew Jarecki. He's the um, filmmaker from All Good Things, and he did work on Felicity. You know, remember that television show that... With Carrie Russell. I know, that set the stage for not being able to cut your Mm -hmm. hair if you have a serious contract. (laughs) So it's well worth the time, well worth the time. Love the recommendation. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, It won the the Emmy for Outstanding Documentary in a Nonfiction Series, and then it also won for Editing. And the combination of those two things, and you know, a story that you cannot possibly make up if you tried, and then really well-edited work. Now, by the way, they worked on it for 10 years. Wow. And the ending is going to blow you away. So uh, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. It's in HBO, and you can also buy it on iTunes, and I think it might be in Amazon as well. People like to believe in fairy tales. You ready? Of course. Okay, and now we're going to move to think back on all the tales that you remember as Camelot. (laughs) Don't let it be forgot that once there was a spot for one brief shining moment that was known as Camelot. No, Hollister, I'm I'm surprised you didn't opt to sing that verse. Well, you know, if I didn't have such a bad cold, I might have tried to do it, but <laughs> um, but instead I just decided to go with the, you know, and, and maybe you know what I think out of respect for the for the song to tell you the truth, it's one of my favorite songs as well. So, and I don't know about you, but I was expecting to go in and watch Jackie and have it just sort of be yet another one of those stories of what happened on that you know, the three days. Uh, So I was really pleasantly surprised by the nuance of going into the psychology of what Jackie Kennedy was going through during during the time that um, he died. And then her brilliant marketing ploy of turning what was really a two-year, 10-month presidential reign into into something that will always be known as Camelot. I mean, the woman's a genius. She's a marketing genius. It was definitely a big lesson in history belongs to those who preserve it. You could just foresee Jackie O's future as an editor at a publishing house in New York. <laughs> I know. Absolutely. But, you know, Hollister, you and I are two people who have spent an inordinate amount of time in New York, Boston, Cape Cod. So it's not as though I felt the need to see another Kennedy vehicle. What to me is disappointing, I should probably lead with the fact that I thought Natalie Portman was terrific. She really nails Jackie O's 
perhaps self-consciously manufactured voice, that feathery voice of hers. But of all the moments in Jackie O's life that I would have liked to have seen under the microscope a little bit more, it's not her planning the funeral procession for JFK because that's perhaps the piece of history I'm most familiar with. Since we recently reviewed The Crown on the BBC, I was so curious as I was sitting there at the theater what the writers of The Crown would have done with Jackie O's life. Because, you know, in The Crown, they chose that period of Queen Elizabeth's life that we're not that familiar with when she was young. And I feel like it might have been more interesting to dwell on Jackie O as she got older, because there's so many dramatic moments in her life. I mean, when you think about marrying a senator who becomes president, who is assassinated, and her running off with her sister's ex-boyfriend and the wealthiest guy in the world and becoming an editor and working with Michael Jackson later in life, certainly a lot of things there. But I didn't think the plot of this movie was particularly gripping. You know, and and I would I would come from another point of view on that, in that it's a story so well known to so many, and here was a nuance to it. That, by the way, it's not even necessarily true. I mean, this is this is not documented in any way what happens on the screen, uh, but it really did give an insight into how history was created. And especially the time we're living in now where fake news is a big issue and all these things we're, we're now looking at. And she goes into, you know, we're talking about 1963 and she talks about just because you read it doesn't make it really history. And don't you wonder what really, really happened? And so I thought it brought this, this freshness, this newness to something that we all know so so very, very well. For me, the problem with the plot was the use of what was supposed to be the interview with Theodore H. White that Jackie Kennedy did a week after the assassination for Life magazine, mm-hmm. where she was then, the only reason she agreed to do the interview was that she could totally edit it. So basically she could say whatever she wanted to him, but she knew that it wouldn't get in if she didn't want it to. And I felt that that was what didn't work, is they were trying to pull it all together with those interview clips that he was doing with her, and I don't think that works That's so funny, well. That's funny, Halster. I thought that was the strongest part of the movie, <laughs> the so interview funny, scenes with yeah. her and Billy Crudup, because in those scenes, I really yeah. felt the dramatic tension where you felt the powerful hand of Jackie O manufacturing this mythology. Yeah. I'm guessing you won't allow me to write any of that. No. Because I never said that. They cut between four different sequences. That interview with the journalist, her Emmy-winning tour of the White House. Again, all part of this theme of preserving the legacy. The actual assassination with the stunt brain. And then the confession to the Irish priest. And remember, those letters were sold a couple years ago. You might be bringing a a level in that's even deeper than what I was thinking is there just were too many roadways they were on. That bus had too many turns. Do you know what I mean? I didn't think so because when they actually show her in the White House, she's often whispering. Her back is often to us. And for example, when you think of the scene where there's kind of a little mini showdown between her and RFK, I thought that was surprisingly not dramatic. Oh, I found it totally I thought it was dramatic. much more powerful when you saw her even not talking. Yeah, that that scene with her and Peter Sorsgaard, I thought could have had so much more potential. Oh, uh, no, than it I, did. I thought I thought that was really really well done. But keep in mind that the director, he said that he would not number one he said he wouldn't do the film unless she would do it because he felt that Natalie Portman was the only person who could play this role. And number two, he insisted that she be in every scene. So he had any scene where she wasn't present written out of the script and so that's how important he felt she was to this 
to the tale of the story at all. So there's no scene mm-hmm. that Natalie's not in at all. And um, but I I just I felt that the tension between she and the interviewer to me was forced and it was awkward and uncomfortable rather than um, than helpful. And so oh, to, uh, yeah. to me it was interesting. It was like watching the Frost Nixon debates yeah, where you really like felt it. the push and pull. So even when you see her chain smoking throughout and in real life, they never ever showed her with a cigarette. Yeah, there's very few, very few images, but she was a smoker, that's true. Yeah. And you know, she just blithely says to him, I don't smoke. And I thought this is powerful that you see that she's driving the narrative. Well, she wasn't lying to him when she said that. He was sitting right there. He was she was pointing out yeah, oh, she I was know, pointing out to him that he could not tell the world. That's the world right. was never gonna know her. And she was creating was she was creating her own history no question about which was it. interesting yeah. to watch but i thought the children were introduced into the movie too late i felt like it was an hour into the movie and i thought are they going to show caroline and john john and then i started thinking this is making the young qe2 on the crown look like a veritable nanny and then the children finally appeared but i thought they should have been brought in sooner well i think the the fact that they weren't was almost purposeful in saying that well, when they got older, she might have been a more um, active mother. At that particular period of time, she wasn't all that active with those kids. The latter part of the movie, she was more active, but I was surprised they didn't show that iconic image. Since, again, she was a master of the visual record, they didn't show that iconic image of John John saluting his father's coffin. I was sure they would show that. Well, you know, it's funny because I uh, I remember the day Kennedy was assassinated. I was in sixth grade. And we were all sent home, and I think I've mentioned this before. So we got home, and then we sat in front of the TV, which had never happened before, for three days while everything happened live, right from from Ruby shooting Oswell. That was live on television. I mean, I, I remember watching it, and you just couldn't believe what you were watching. And then I remember watching the entire funeral from beginning to end. But I also remember watching her tour of the White House, you know, two or three years prior to that. A tour of the White House with Mrs. John F. Kennedy, created and produced by CBS News for the CBS Television Network. Mrs. Kennedy, I want to thank you for letting us uh, visit your official home. This is obviously the room from which much of your work on it is directed. Yes, it's attic and cellar all in one. Mrs. Kennedy, every first lady and every administration since President Madison's time has made changes, greater or smaller, in the White House. Before we look at any of the changes you've made, what's your basic plan? Well, I really don't have one, because I think this house will always grow and should. It just seemed to me such a shame when we came here to find hardly anything of the past in the house, hardly anything before 1902. I know when we went to Columbia, the presidential palace there has all the history of that country in it where Simon Bolivar was, every piece of furniture in it has some link with the past. I thought the White House should be like that. I remember my mother mesmerized watching her on the screen, but for me, she seemed like a fairy princess that wasn't real. So the, the tour of the White House was almost like a, a fantasy. And then the funeral was huge, and we just sat there for three days, as did the rest of America, which had never happened before. So even that alone made it an unusual um, point in time because it was the first time on television you could watch something like that unfold. And she was stoic watching her. But as a sixth grader, I was much more interested in looking at the kids and what they were doing and, uh, you know, and the horse with no rider. And I thought, 
well, that's really funny because he didn't ride horses. And, you know, it, you know, interesting to me, the horse, the horse with no rider was because Lincoln had a horse and they used Lincoln's horse, you know, John F. Kennedy Mm -hmm. didn't have a horse. And to me, they might've, they should have brought in, you know, the, the, the PT boat people or something to walk in honor of him. In other words, she didn't adjust it. She just basically copied Lincoln's funeral, you know, so. But I thought that was a powerful part of the script when she knocks on the glass between her and the driver and she asks the driver and the others yeah, in the exactly. car, yeah. who was McKinley? Well, she was no, who was yeah, Garfield? She was no, exactly. And they have no, she goes, who was Lincoln? What was he famous for? And they said, you know, he ended the Civil War. And she's like, I'm going to go with that one. That's the president. You know, and it is wild to think that John F. Kennedy was the 35th president and already the fourth to be shot in office. It's not a very good track record. But Hollister, what you say about watching on television, this is something that always amazes me whenever I see these stories that take place inside the White House is that even the leaders of the country, who presumably are the newsmakers, invariably they're all sitting around the TV watching these events unfold through that medium. So you see LBJ and RFK and all these others watching Lee Harvey Oswald get assassinated on television well, along with everyone else. And it's I'll, the I'll power of few, that medium. I'll tell you a few memories I have of that day watching television. One was... When they were walking from, I think, the White House to the to the church or whatever, that eight-block walk, Charles de Gaulle was so tall, all you saw was de Gaulle. And the commentator kept saying, there's Charles de Gaulle, and you couldn't miss him because he was like 10 feet taller than everybody else. Would you mind getting a message to all our funeral guests when they land? Of course. Inform them that I will walk with Jack tomorrow, alone if necessary, and tell General de Gaulle that if he wishes to ride in an armored car or in a tank for that matter, I won't blame him. And I'm sure the tens of millions of people watching won't either. The the one problem I have with Natalie Portman is she's only five foot three. She was and, a very tiny Jackie yeah, O. Yeah, and true. well, and Jackie was five foot seven. And I felt like that she was a little too petite to have the presence that Jackie would have when she walked into a room. I thought it was a bit a bit difficult. But there was a huge mistake. Did you notice it? I swear at some point in the movie, somebody said JFK was the 29th president. No, I didn't. Well, I I did not hear that. But there was a visual mistake that was unbelievable. I can't believe nobody's pointed it out. Oh, was it at the end when she's driving down the street and she sees that store selling the dresses? And of course, everyone's copying her inimitable style. I guess that's an oxymoron. And they show this um, store that was not there in the 1960s. No, uh, when she was... When she was getting undressed after she came back from Texas, okay. she takes off pantyhose. They didn't have pantyhose in 63. They had garters and, and hose. They didn't have pantyhose. Now, did those make it into the Smithsonian somewhere? What, her, her stockings? Her bloody dress and her no, pillbox no, hat? No, 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 no. What happened no, to the pillbox hat? But here's the thing. That's a huge mistake. I'm sorry, but pantyhose didn't come till I think, like, 79 or something. I can't remember. But... I was just, I just thought to myself, that's just sloppy. You know, that's just plain sloppy. Now, did you find her, could you, did you have empathy for her? Did you find her a compelling character as portrayed by? Again, I found her most compelling during the quote unquote interview with the journalist where she's feeding him the lines. No, but did you have empathy? Did you, did you, 
Did you feel bad for her? I don't feel like I was given enough context. I mean, even JFK is just a man who looks like JFK. You don't really see any scenes of her with the president. So I see a lot of... Oh, you don't think that dancing scene at the end with the president was exactly what it told the entire story of how she adored him? No, I think it was a very complicated story. Because what I heard in real life is the reason she was in Dallas is JFK said, look, it's not that long since our baby Patrick died and you've been photographed off on the yacht with Aristotle Onassis, who was dating Jackie O's sister, who was married at the time. And apparently already beginning his fling with Jackie. Again, this theme of preserving history, you know. Recently, I read the book Mozart in the Jungle because we reviewed the series. And I didn't realize the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, that was something really that happened under Eisenhower's administration. But then after the assassination, it was renamed the Kennedy Center. Oh, I mean, well, everything was renamed. You know, streets in Boston have been renamed JFK. I found her to be a cold, calculating... Um, you know, I, and the way they layered in that, you know, when she said, you know, I, I've spent very few nights with him, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, uh, their marriage, I mean, they did show that the, their marriage was a different kind of marriage, if you will. I lost track somewhere. What was real? What was performance? I didn't find her a compellingly, uh, I, I had no empathy for her. I feel like she was in the scenes alone. Even though there were scenes with Greta Gerwig playing her assistant, Nancy Tuckerman, there are scenes with her and Peter Sorsgaard playing the feckless RFK, but I didn't feel like there was much interaction on a human level of Jackie O with anybody, you know, not with the artist. Well, you know, it's funny because the director, whose name you should pronounce rather than me. Pablo Larraín, I I think. He's Chilean and very talented. He did Neruda and No. Yeah, one of the things that I wanted to quote from him, which I thought so told the story of Jackie, she said, he said, Jackie was the most unknown from all the known people we know. Meaning, of all the famous people, she, you knew the least about her or understood her or had any sense of who she really, really was. And I think that was really true. You You, you really do think that's true? Oh, yeah, totally. Totally. I think we had no idea who she was. And do you think this movie gave us insights? Um, Well, you know, again, uh, this movie was not based on any real due diligence. So I have to take it as fiction rather than nonfiction. So I can't really I can't really assess that. But it certainly gave me a little bit of insight into who she might might be. You know, so um, when they showed her laying out all those pills on the table. Is that something Uh, that's well known? Yeah, exactly. I don't know. You posted on our Facebook page an interview of Natalie Portman doing the Hollywood Reporter Roundtable. She really does nail her accent. Uh But, you know, this Hollywood Reporter Roundtable, three of the actresses that participated were Natalie Portman, Annette Bening, and Amy Adams for this year's roundtable. Five years ago, those three were part of another roundtable because they were all getting talked up five years ago. Annette Benning for The Kids Are All Right, Natalie Portman for Black Swan, which, of course, she went on to win the Oscar that year, and Amy Adams for The Fighter. Right. And now all three are back again this That's year so funny. Yeah, with a lot yeah. of buzz. Well, you know, Kennedy's accent was a combination of Long Island and Miss Porter's Finishing School. She went to Miss Porter's Finishing School, and people who came out of there had that sort of affected throaty, you know, from the chest kind of conversational ability. They actually took classes at it at Miss Porter's. 
And but she was from Long Island, and so Natalie Portman had this great interview actually on on Jimmy Fallon, I think. I can't remember where I saw it, where she said the, the Long Island part was easy for me because I grew up in Long Island. But combining it with the Miss Porter's affected, drawn out, throaty, breathy was a little was a little harder. She worked on it. With Marilyn Monroe thrown in for I good know, measure. I know, exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, the other thing we have to give it to Natalie Portman for. Now, this is really interesting. The entire film was filmed in th- 33 days. That's impressive. And Yeah, and the most number of takes that Natalie needed was five, but in a third of that, a third of this movie was shot in one take, which is unheard of. Yeah, that's how good she was. By the time she got to set, he said she was so on the money that as long as everybody else was there, you know, it was a one-take performance. So they were able to keep it well within a very small budget, and um, that's pretty unheard of to do a third of a movie in one take. Yeah, and I want to play a clip here of Natalie Portman talking about that layer of responsibility when you're portraying someone so iconic. It's got a different, definitely a different challenge, which is that you have to sort of get to a threshold of believability before anyone can ever relate to you emotionally because if you don't just pass that initial like does she look enough and sound enough and you know walk enough like her that we can buy her as this character then you know they can't lose themselves in the story no matter what story you're going to tell. Now Hollister since you're so familiar with the cape was that really the Kennedy compound they showed in Hyannisport? No, it's not. It was just no. something playing the part. Uh, the Kennedy compound by the way th- that was very that was sort of a fancy version of it. It's very uh, Cape Cod, rustic, you know, beaten but but large and sprawling. But it's not it's not fancy. All right, now what I want to ask you though, cinematographer, director that you are, so it was shot in grainy sixteen millimeter film. What does that mean? I think it was a very good artistic choice to intersplice the footage that they used from the JFK Library they in Boston. They did that beautifully. They had real footage in there, and you can't tell the difference. They did it very well. And yeah. when you look yeah. at the actual footage again of Jackie Kennedy giving this White House tour, Natalie Portman really does nail her mannerisms and her walk. and So is that why he went to that, so that it wouldn't be such a contrasting... I think so, uh, to really okay. you know, give us that, yeah. that feel of being in the 1960s. Kind of like last week when we were discussing La La Land, that they shot it using CinemaScope. I think it was a very good choice to stick to the 1960s, especially since so many people have seen the Zapruder films and are pretty familiar with the footage from the Kennedy era. Interestingly enough, they also, the other thing he did is he did everything very close up. Mm-hmm. And when you have Natalie Portman as your star, you can do that because who doesn't want to look at her And it does up? make her seem bigger but, than her five foot two self. Exactly. But she also, with everything that woman was going through during those days... Um, so many close-ups with so much emotion. Again, another reason why I think this woman deserves, you know, I think Natalie Portman deserves to get the kudos she's getting. It was a great vehicle for her. There should be more horses, more soldiers. Why are you doing this, Mrs. Kennedy? There's more crying, more cameras. This is making us look like barbarians. What's wrong with you? Did you see where Darren Aronofsky was one of the producers? Yes, I did see that, actually. They gave a special thanks to Chanel. A well-deserved special thanks. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, the clothing, you know, the, the, certainly the costumes for this were easy to do because, you know, her, her, 
her wardrobe is iconic and very similar. You know, her whole life she wore very similar looking things. Although in later in life, she was almost Catherine Hepburnish in her ability to wear black pants and black sweaters. She was big and black. Sp- she actually lived in the same building as me in New York, 1045th Avenue. Really? Yeah. So I saw her in the lobby a lot. Um and she was always very polite, but aloof and never looks anybody in the eye. Was she always wearing those big sunglasses? <laughs> I didn't see her a lot in the sunglasses, but um, but at any rate, she, uh, black pants, you know, talk about wearing black unless you can find something darker. She was very big into that. when she, And she used to walk to work. Is that when she was working at the publishing house? Yeah, Random House. She was an editor at Random House. You know, they said the funniest thing about her having to work on that biography with Michael Jackson, Jackie and Jacko, <laughs> yeah, yeah. was that they both had kind of similar breathy voices. Well, I would go. have loved to have heard that audio. I Although really I, I, from people I know in that industry, she was really a good editor. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a, a lightweight job that they just gave her for her name. She really did well, do the work. You can tell yeah. from, from yeah, how she handles exactly. this journalist that editing is in her future. And then I wanted to ask you, you know, did you think about Caroline at all during this film? Like, do you think she's going to see Absolutely. it? Absolutely. You know, it's sort of what you know? What do you do when you're the only one left, mm-hmm. and every you know, and you know, two of the three that are gone died terribly tragic uh, deaths. And it's been Caroline's duty for so long oh to oversee gosh. the family's yeah. legacy between yeah. the library and the profiles of and she's Courage done a very Awards. Good job. You have to, yeah, you give her that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I thought about her a lot, and I thought, you know, it's so it must be so difficult to have everything be so public. And I'm sure there's much about this movie that is not true. And then, you, you know, she's probably sitting there rolling her eyes going, seriously? But there is. If you want to really, if it, if it piques your interest and you want to know more about it, there are eight hours of tape that Jackie did before she died with a friend where she's very candid about the people she met and about what happened in the White House and... Um, and so if you want the truth, you should go on. It's on YouTube, and it's uh, eight hours of Jackie's uh, tapes that she made herself. That after yeah. she died, they became public. I think Caroline and made them public her? about two or three years ago, maybe. That, that must have been her wish, that they be made yeah, public. Yeah, well, I'm sure she wouldn't have done it. Unlike but. these letters to the Irish priest that were auctioned <laughs> off a couple of years ago. Yeah. I, I don't know. I think that's bad juju to read letters to I someone know, who wrote their priest. And, you know. But so if you really want to know who this woman was and how she really felt about what was going on, which will be ten times more authentic than this movie, you might want to go onto YouTube and take a look You know, the those. screenwriter, Noah Oppenheim, he also wrote Allegiant, which I find to be a very different movie. Yeah, it was. Do you want to hear my, my favorite line? Okay, you have a favorite line? Okay, what is it's it? It's totally in keeping with the theme okay, of the movie. Okay, go for it. And you? I believe that the characters we read about on the page end up being more real than the men who stand beside us. It's a great line, yep. And it's really true that, you know, when when somebody creates something, uh, it can only be jaded by meeting the person behind the creation. It's sort of like you don't want to really have lunch with some of your favorite authors because you might be really disappointed. <laughs> so uh, so on that note, you know, I, I do think that whatever Jackie really was in her life, she brought great gifts to America. She gave us a sense of self that we didn't have before her, you know, and it was a sense of, of dignity and uh, style and sort of creativity that that we as a country didn't have, and she certainly brought it to the forefront. So thank you, Jackie, for that. Now, you know who else looked great in black pants? Oh. Ginger Rogers. <laughs> yeah.